0: Shabbat shalom, everyone, and mazel tov. I've been known to go on Twitter every once in a while, usually when I'm waiting for the elevator. And there is uh, one particular feed that I get. It's called History Lovers. And all they do is flash pictures from the past. Pictures that are 50, 70, 100, 150 years old, actually. And I realize that it's difficult to imagine the lives of historical people, to think about how they dressed and worked and ate and spoke. Time period movies try to capture some of it, but the actors' bodies are chiseled by modern trading and modern diets. Their faces are augmented and injected copious amounts of makeup and other things. But even images that I look at on my Twitter feed doesn't give us the sound and smells of life back then. It doesn't give us the small gestures and habits that people had, that one has to assume, are really different from the things that we do today. Take, for example, if you were going to meet someone a 100 years ago for a drink, and you're late. Let's say the train you took was delayed because they needed some coal, Or maybe it was raining outside and the roads were muddy. And you had a hard time walking to get there. In any event, you arrive. And the person is there waiting for you. And they're just sitting there. They're waiting. There's no phone in their hand. They're not calling someone or answering an email or catching up on news. No, no. There they are. Just sitting. Despite the difficulty... I want to ask you to try to imagine someone from the past, but not so far in the past. <coughs> I want to draw your attention to Sigmund Freud. Bore 150 or so years ago, he lived in a world that looked and acted very different from ours. We think of Freud as someone who was a passionate scientist and thinker, which is all true. But Freud also loved a good joke. In fact, he loved jokes so much he wrote a whole book about them and this one, he said, was his most favorite. Two Jews are standing before a firing squad and both are offered a blindfold. The first one accepts the blindfold and the other refuses it. And the first Jew turns to the second and says, don't make trouble. The truth is, It is difficult for us to imagine the lives of people who lived in the past and Sigmund Freud's life. It's difficult to imagine the clothes that were all handmade. You couldn't go to a store to buy a shirt or a pair of shoes off the rack. It's difficult to imagine a world without television, computers, and airports. But there is at least one thing about Freud's life that most of us in this room are very familiar with. It was so powerful that for a man who wrote next to nothing about his personal life, this event he committed to paper. It was a Saturday afternoon in the city of Freiburg, where Sigmund Freud lived as a child. His father invited him out on a Shabbat afternoon walk. His father was religious. And off to the park, they went and young Sigmund and tow with his father after shul and lunch. Not long after, two men approached his father and they yelled dirty Jew and kike at him while they shoved him to the ground. They then told him to take his hat off, which he refused to do. And then taking branch and ham, they struck him in the head so hard that it knocked his hat off, sending him to the, brown, to the ground bloodied. Later in his life, when Freud wrote this, he said it was the most searing and traumatic event that he ever experienced. And I know that we would all feel the same. And like Freud, we may be finding ourselves again in such a world. I've just returned back from two months teaching rabbinical students in Berlin. And while there, my wife Lisa and I thought it would be wise to use our time to explore Europe. After all, European cities share a closeness to one another that North Americans can only dream about. Our first destination was Copenhagen, land of Hans Christian Andersen, danishes, and small broad sandwiches. Taking to the streets to get a sense of its style and history, we wove our way through old Copenhagen. Built from the harbor out, Copenhagen is clean and calm in a distinctive Nordic way. We move past churches, some of which date back to the early 13th century. And turning a corner, I say to my wife, there's the shul. And she says, I can't see it. And there I said, pointing to four soldiers in full battle gear, sandwiched between two armed Humvees, only then taking a few other steps, does does Copenhagen's beautiful 17th century Central Synagogue come into view. On the front entrance are the words, Baruch Habab, Shem Adonai, Blessed are those who come in God's name. And I thought to myself, but first you have to carry a machine gun. I knew we had reached the Shul, because nowhere else in that city, even in front of the royal residences, was there that degree of security. Nowhere else. The same was true for Paris. The street that Paris's great synagogue sits on is closed to street traffic. You approach by foot through layers of security barriers. An armed soldier approaches with the synagogue representative in tow, and I say to them, lit palel. In Hebrew, I say, we've come to pray. The representative taps the soldier on the arm, who steps aside and allows us to pass through. So people ask me, what was it like in Berlin? Was I scared? Did I feel threatened? And I tell them that Berlin is a whole lot safer than New York in a month of terrible anti-Semitic attacks, beatings and shootings and threats, a stabbing of multiple people and a Hanukkah celebration in Muncie, New York. The news that upset me, the very most, did not involve violence. Remember this past month, both in Europe and the United States, Jews were repeatedly assaulted in the public. In London, Anti-Semitic graffiti was painted on synagogues and Jewish-owned stores. A Belgian newspaper accused a Jewish lawmaker of being an Israeli spy because they're Jewish. A northern Italian town of Schio, the residents refused to accept the offer of a Holocaust memorial to the residents who had been deported. The mayor said, explaining that the memorial would be divisive. The anti-Semitism of today comes from the right wing and the left wing. It comes from other minorities who also face persecution. But what they all share in common is the growing belief that it is open season on Jews. And maybe they are more right than we might be willing to believe. And yet what upset me the most this past month was not only the horrible things done to Jews, but in particular something that Jews did. Late last month, a synagogue in the Netherlands decided to no longer post the timers of their prayer services in public, leaving you with the choice that if you wanted to attend, you needed to know a member of the community. And when I read that, I caught my breath. Because just like there was the first synagogue who locked their front doors during the day and others soon followed, where everyone now does it, And then there was the first synagogue who had security at their front door, and then all the others did it too. And then there was the first synagogue who hired armed guards and police and installed cameras and put bulletproof windows in, and then all the others followed. I knew with that piece of news, out of Brussels, some kind of line had been crossed that there is no coming back from. And I think that we may all think that following their lead, might be the right thing to do, but we better not. The history of Jews, of Jews who go underground, is appallingly unsuccessful, both for them and for the Jews as a whole. In the late 15th century, the Roman Catholic Inquisition of Jews culminated in Spain with an ultimatum, leave, convert, or die. Many, many Jews left who would become the founders of the great Jewish communities of Algiers, Tunisia, and Morocco. Some were put to death. Those who stayed converted and in time would be known as Moranos. They were called Moranos because their Christian neighbors knew that these newly minted converts would not eat pork. They were, at best in their eyes, half semi-hearted converts to Christianity they called them Maranos because the word Morano means pig in Spanish. In other words, they were still outsiders. And even in a world of 23andMe, that is exposing millions of people of Spanish and Latin descent to previously unknown Jewish roots, these people are not Jews. And they and their ancestors and their descendants are a lost treasure to our people. Which is to say... That when Jews go underground, the only thing that it does is undermine the survival of Jews. The ancient rabbis tell an insight about the story that we read this morning in our Torah reading, which is the beginning of the book of Exodus, which is the story of the persecution and then the enslavement of the Israelites. The ancient rabbis asked, how did they survive the slavery? From modern archaeological records, we know of the hundreds of different tribes that were caught in the web of Egyptian slavery, Hittites and Moabites and Kenites and Sidonians and the Hyksos and the Jebusites, to name just a few, and none of them, not a one survived, to tell their story, with the sole exception of the Jews. And it is they and we alone who are here to tell that story. And once again, the rabbis asked, how did they survive? And those ancient rabbis explained that they survived because of three things they didn't let go of. They kept their Hebrew names. They kept their distinctive clothing. And they preserved their Hebrew language. In other words, that even in the face of extreme deprivation, they didn't let go of what made them who they were. What those rabbis deeply understood is that the story of persecution and slavery and survival was important, not only as mere history, but as a lesson to Jews and humans everywhere. Hiding is at best a temporary salve. In the long term, it saves nothing. Here is the hard truth. The Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox communities of North America, are disproportionately the targets of murderous and violent anti-Semitic attacks, because they will not do what you and I can do, which is disappear. You can walk out of here without a kippa on your head and look like everyone else, but they won't. You can dress as I do in contemporary fashion, but they continue to wear the distinctive wardrobe that they brought over from medieval America- Europe. They will not cut off the side locks on the sides of their heads. And by doing so, they have become the Jewish target that every Jew actually is. And I'm little different. In my time in Europe, I disproportionately wore a baseball cap instead of a kippah. Although my wife reminded me time and time again, the only observant Jewish men are the only adults who actually wear baseball caps all the time. <laughs> But one Saturday evening, after Shabbat, we were in Paris with some of our children who had met us for a visit. We stopped on a bridge overlooking the Eiffel Tower, and we asked these two young women passing us by if they would take a picture for us. They said they would. The pictures were taken, and they came over to hand us back our phones. And my wife looked at one of the girls, and she sees that she is wearing a Magin David. And she says to her, Look at your necklace. And the girl was momentarily shocked. But then I lifted my hat and I showed her my kippah. She smiled and we wished each other a Shavua Tov. I was struck by her confidence and her bravery. Because Paris is not a safe place for Jews. And walking away, I promised myself to learn something from that moment. One of the mitzvot commanded to us in the Torah is, Lo Tuchalit Alem that you shall not hide from the suffering you see in others, that you must intercede and help whenever and wherever you can another person. But it also seems to me that it comes to teach us something else, that you shall not hide from who you are. Hiding only strengthens the anti-Semite. Hiding gives power to the anti-Semitism by emboldening their actions and hate. Hiding shows them that anti-Semitism works. Judaism, from its very beginning, was an understanding that life requires bravery and courage. That nothing of meaning came by life living sheepishly. But but, but putting aside philosophy is a more scientific argument. For over a thousand years, the Jew has mightily tried to hide living without complaint in the ghettos. Ostracized outside city walls, barred without protest from vocation and employment and education and propriety, to no avail... They came for us anyway. And when they did, it was with a wrath unimaginable. al tit the Torah commands, you shall not hide. And for our generation, and for our children's generation, this may become the most defining mitzvah that we will ever experience. Shabbat Shalom.